Welcome to the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast by Venus O'Hara. I'm here to welcome you into the world of orgasmic living by hosting experts to discuss orgasmic topics such as nutrition, spirituality, personal development, sexuality, and much more. Here, we will offer lifestyle lessons that can help you lead a fulfilling, joyous, and orgasmic lifestyle. I'm your guide, Venus O'Hara. Welcome to the 63rd episode of the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast with Venus O'Hara. In this Capricorn New Moon episode, we'll be discussing dating and divorce. We'll be speaking with Sarah Intelligator, a holistic divorce attorney and author of Live, Laugh, Find True Love, a step-by-step guide to finding a meaningful relationship. Then, we'll be discussing the book, Lunar Living, Working with the Magic of the Moon Cycles, by Kirsty Gallagher, who is a moon mentor. The episode ends with a guided meditation with affirmations for new beginnings. But first, let me share with you my experience with new beginnings and breakups. Happy New Year and welcome to the first episode of the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast in 2024. This year is going to be a year of growth. I'm going to publish more episodes because I have so much content lined up. And also recently we've been experiencing quite a lot of lot of growth and I want to make the most of that by producing episodes more often. So I think I'm going to go for three long episodes and one short meditation episode per month. So we'll be doing new moon, first quarter, full moon and third quarter. In this first episode, this is the Capricorn new moon and the sign of Capricorn or the new moon in Capricorn is associated with qualities such as discipline, responsibility, ambition and hard work. And I always find it more attainable to actually set intentions with new every new moon as opposed to having, let's say, New Year's resolutions. I think, I don't know what the statistics are, but I know it's quite kind of proven that most people who set these unattainable goals in January, by mid-February, they've all kind of been forgotten about. And you can feel very disappointed with yourself. However, if you're setting intentions every month with a new moon, it's much more attainable. So with new moon, it's about new intentions. And then full moon is about letting go and releasing that which no longer serves you. So back to the Capricorn full moon, or sorry, new moon. So this is a time where we can set ambitious goals. It can it encourages us to set practical and achievable long-term goals. And it's about practical planning, nothing like new year for some practical planning, especially in this particular new moon. Also, it's about discipline and focus, professional and career matters, and building a solid foundation. So Capricorn is about building a solid and stable foundation for the future and consider what structures and foundations you want to establish in your life, both personally and professionally. But let's go back to personal goals. It's also the first week of the year is also known as there is divorce day, which is the first working day of the year. And that's why I've decided to um, publish this particular interview today with Sarah A. Intelligator, who is an 
um, a divorce attorney from LA and she's written a book about dating which is interesting because her speciality is the end of relationships whereas she's seen so many patterns and identified so many things that go wrong um, that she's kind of identified this blueprint or this kind of um, a guide let's say to find true love and find a meaningful relationship that's based on fundamental values but more about that in a moment so why is the first working day of the year known as divorce day well apparently it's it's um there is a spike in divorce um how would i say it's it's known by the uh, those in the legal profession it marks the day when lawyers reportedly see a spike in couples filing to end their marriages after the festivities are over so i guess this is a time christmas can be a very painful time for many people and having to endure another christmas in a relationship that you know is kind of dying or dead, then people start the new year with a new hopes and think, I, I can't do this for another year. And I guess that's the reason why. For me personally, most of my breakups have happened around spring, but of course I've never been married. So I've never had that kind of, the type of Christmases that married people have. But yeah, Christmas, oh, um, for me, it's been more spring when the weather's getting better. And I just think, oh, I need to kind of get rid of this relationship and it's incredible because um, most of my breakups uh, you know breaking up is not an easy thing to do but I think a lot of them have been quite liberating because it's been the end of the suffering that I've endured during the relationship and a relationship should never be about suffering I mean I guess I guess there is some degree of suffering when you are in love with someone as that that person who you love and they love you they, they can actually potentially hurt you a lot and you can hurt them a lot even inadvertently which is kind of a painful reality um, to to accept but there is there are different degrees of pain as well and some things um, which can become very painful are recurring problems things which never get solved and which never improve and it's about taking you know stock of what's what's good about a relationship and what's bad and, and if you can get if you get to a point where you can no longer take it or accept it anymore and I've been in relationships that have really you know, been bad for my self-esteem. And um, and then when I've come to a place of actually um, breaking free from them, it's been a real liberating prospect, something that's been actually quite euphoric. I've just felt so proud of myself and also just felt strong. So I think sometimes I've stayed in relationships for too long because I was afraid of being alone. I think a lot of people can, can empathize with that. But back to that's the kind of end, but this is also a time of new beginnings. So finding new new relationships is also quite an exciting prospect, especially at the beginning of the year when you're trying to improve yourself, get rid of those old habits. And um, yeah, so it's very interesting to speak with um, Sarah A. Intelligator, who's going to share with us some tips about how to find true love. Do you want to make your day more orgasmic? Do you want to experience pleasure like never before? If so, check out tracysdog.com. There you will find a range of innovative adult products designed for your ultimate satisfaction. From intimate massages to couples accessories, Tracy's Dog has something for everyone. They even have one of the highest rated sex toys on Amazon. One user even said that it was so good that they nearly passed out. I'm pretty sure I levitated. It was a never-ending orgasm, she said. 
Having tried many Tracy's dog products, I can vouch for their orgasmic quality. If you're curious, visit tracysdog.com to elevate your intimate moments. Now it's time for this episode's interview. We'll be speaking with Sarah Intelligator, a holistic divorce attorney and author of Live, Laugh, Find True Love, a step-by-step guide to finding a meaningful relationship. Sarah Intelligator, welcome to the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast. Thank you so much for taking part in this interview today. I'm very happy to have you here. For those who are unfamiliar with your work, could you tell us what you do? Yes, I am a divorce attorney, family law attorney, and specifically a holistic divorce and family law attorney. What does it mean, a holistic family? So I coined the term holistic divorce and family law um, when I started practicing on my own. Um, I was a yoga teacher for 20 years, and I absolutely thought that the practice of family law was soul crushing and awful. Um, I worked for a firm for five years. I hated it so much. And when I went off onto my own and I thought, you know, how do I want to, I actually didn't know what I wanted to do anymore. I didn't even know if I wanted to practice loss, but I needed to maintain some clients so that I could pay my bills. And it just came to me at that moment that what I do is I actually incorporate these tools that I have in my tool bag of, of, you know, guiding people through difficult moments as a yoga teacher. Right. And I can do that. And I did, I was doing that as a family law attorney, guiding people through this, their divorces through these really difficult times in their lives. And so I coined the term holistic divorce and family law to kind of um, describe my style of practice that I'm really looking at the whole individual and the whole situation and trying to give them whatever modalities to get them through this difficult process. Amazing. So I devoured your book, Live, Laugh, Find True Love, a step-by-step guide to finding a meaningful relationship. It was so easy to read, yet it was very eloquent. And I love the examples you gave of real-life situations. It was They were very juicy and very entertaining. And I think you, and you um, explained the points about, for example, the fundamental values very clearly, because when I read those snippets, those stories, I could kind of tell what was going to go wrong. You know, it was very, yeah. <laughs> it was very, yeah. very interesting. And yes, I have, I have lots of questions about your book. Um, the six, well, sorry, so first of all, what inspired you as a divorce attorney to write about dating, which is like the beginning and your your business is about the end of a relationship? Yeah. So part and parcel of that whole concept of holistic divorce and family law, when I'm looking at the whole situation and the whole individual, I'm starting to think, you know, I don't have access to people before they get to my office. I only get to see them once they're there and it's too late. And so Uh, my work kind of shifted a little bit into, well, if I can get to people before they get to my office, then they never have to go through this really painful, emotionally, financially deleterious process and end up in my office. And I went through my own divorce. Um, I'm remarried now, but, um, and, and implemented a lot of the things that I talk about in this book in in finding my, my current, um, husband and my relationship. And, um, you know, just having gone through a divorce on my own and and having gone through that pain, I just, I didn't want anyone else to go through it. I know this book is bad for business, as I say in the book, but I'm okay with that because if I can prevent people from going through a divorce or their children from experiencing their parents' divorce, I'm more than happy to do that. Amazing. So I guess you've seen the same things over and over. Would that be true to say? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, 
just insane how the patterns continue to repeat themselves over and over and over again. And it was so glaring to me that, you know, even within my own divorce and, and the self-reflection that that went on there, that I was like, I have to tell people about this. Mm. Because you can spot lots of patterns when you're outside the situation. It's kind of easier, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's funny that you were saying that as you were reading those fact patterns and fundamental values, how you kind of almost knew what was going to go wrong, like you anticipated it. But the funny thing is when you're in it, you Mm -hmm. don't anticipate it or you just ignore it and kind of sweep it under the rug because it's the more convenient thing to do. Um, So, you know, I'm glad that you saw that those patterns and and kind of where things were going to go was just so obvious because it is. Mm -hmm. Definitely. You talk about six F words, also known as fail factors, and these are unmistakable patterns seen across all failed relationships. They are fundamental values, fear, foundation, fixing, and fairy tale, and family. Going to fundamental values, what does that mean? So fundamental values are distinguishable from fleeting interests, things that you just happen to be into in the moment. Fundamental values are things that are so important to you. They are so part of your essence of who you are, that they're going to be important to you in, you know, 50 years into the future. And they probably were important to you for the duration of your entire life. They're just something that is, it's who you are. Like it could be, for example, something like um, religion, spirituality. Um, One that has been popping up a lot lately, and I don't actually really talk about it in the book, is um, leading a more holistic and healthy lifestyle. That's been a big one lately, only because it comes, it doesn't necessarily come up during dating or beginning of marriage, but when people have children and then they start disagreeing about how they're going to raise their children and, and the lifestyle. That's yeah, quite hard to predict sometimes because um, I think for me, I had a spiritual awakening maybe six years ago. And um, if I'd been with someone the whole time, it might have been, you know, like I also gave up alcohol and I made all these different life choices. I think sometimes um, it could be quite hard if someone radically changes their fundamental values during a relationship as well. Yeah. And and that's a good point. I, I, I hear a lot of people say, oh, you know, this person changed or I changed and we're all constantly evolving. Um, you know, fundamental value isn't limited to one value. It's several different values, right? We have many things that are very fundamentally and deeply important to us. And so I usually tell people, you know, try to find three to five. You can have a lot of differences. You can have different fundamental values, but you want to try to find as many in common with your partner as possible, because then you're going to probably navigate life in a similar way. And, you know, and and uh, with respect to like a spiritual awakening and giving up alcohol and things like that, um, those probably, you know, a a lot of that spirituality and who you are and, and the essence of that, things that led you to get to that point, they probably were there to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, just, you know, it, it manifested as this spiritual awakening at a certain point in your life. But, you know, maybe maybe the spiritual awakening wasn't the fundamental value. Maybe there was something else driving it that was your fundamental value. So I, I often tell people like, well, you know, things might seem like your fundamental value, but if because of where you're at in your life, and as you go through your life, things may change. Like you might get more responsibilities, your job, your, you get have children. You can't 
um, necessarily, you know, party with reckless abandon anymore. Those things aren't necessarily the fundamental values, but the things that underline underlie your drive to do these things, that's the deeper, that's the fundamental value. So is it important to share those values or is support enough if, if they are different? I think it's important to share as many fundamental values with your partner as possible. I think support is also important, but it probably falls more into the category of foundation, which is another mm. one of F words, um, not necessarily like support per se, but it, it manifests in, in different ways. I break that down into um, five separate categories. But, um, you know, if, if we want certain things in life, we have certain goals and we find a partner who wants to achieve goals in a similar way, we're going to work together better as a team in achieving those goals as opposed to growing apart and playing for separate teams. So I think that's the part of the reason fundamental values are so important. I think they help us understand each other. They help us to um, you know, navigate different situations because a good relationship isn't about the good moments. It's about how we work through those difficult moments in life, not necessarily in the relationship itself, but you know, life throws all these challenges our way. And if we don't um, try to achieve goals in a similar way because we don't value the same things, then we grow apart. Mm, definitely. Um, it makes me think about, um, I'm actually vegan and um, I, I don't have it as a requirement for my partners to be vegan because I just think I'd be celibate, you know? <laughs> it's just very, <laughs> very hard to meet vegans. I have actually a vegan social group I just don't like, I'm not attracted to the vegans in it, but um, I have another <laughs> friend who is vegan and that, that for her is a very important thing. And she's finding so much difficulty in finding a partner. But my advice to her would be to become more flexible on that. Do you think that's what, what, what advice would you give to someone like that? Move to Los Angeles. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> a lot of vegans out here. Um, no, uh, I, you know, I, Listen, if it's something that's really important and she can't get past it, then I don't think she should give on something that's so important because it's going to bother her throughout the course of the relationship. Um, you know, she should identify the reasons it's so important to her. But if it's so, so important to her that it becomes a fundamental value. Like for you, it doesn't sound like it's necessarily a fundamental value. It may be like a, a value. Um, but if you're if you're okay with maybe be having a partner who isn't vegan as well, um, you know, it's it's a preference. You would you would like that, but it's not like a make it or break it thing. But for her, if it is and she can't get past that, then I don't think she should give on that. I don't think people should give on things. Um, the more things we give on, the more we end up settling and then we are unhappy and deeply unhappy in our relationships. So the 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 goal is not to um, give on things that are fundamentally important to us, but to just keep looking. And it, it's hard out there. Dating is difficult, mm. um, you know, especially in our modern world where people are kind of leading one another more through online avenues and not organically necessarily in a community where people are like-minded and share similar ethos um you know it's it's difficult but i i i don't think your standard should be so high that you never meet anyone but i think they should be high because you have certain expectations for your life and and rightfully so definitely 
So more about, um, you talked about first dates being like job interview process. I thought that was very interesting. Um, <laughs> what examples, what are some examples of, good examples of questions that we should ask on the first date? The questions you're asking should be geared at ascertaining whether you and your date share fundamental values. Yes, a first date should absolutely be like a job interview, but it shouldn't, I want to be clear, it shouldn't be completely devoid of flirtation. Um, in the book, I there's an exercise where once you've determined your fundamental values, um, you want to come up with a list of questions that will help you ascertain whether your date shares those fundamental values. And so you know, you go, these are not questions you're necessarily asking on a first date. Um, maybe you're, you're asking one or on a first date, maybe you're asking one on a second date or a third or fourth. Um, and it's not like you have a clipboard in front of you and you're sitting there and just going through a list of questions, right? A date should be fun. It should be flirty. You should let the conversation flow naturally. You shouldn't be so preoccupied about answering this list of questions that you have here. But it is important to, um, and one of the reasons I have people do this exercise is so they already have these questions in their mind so that they can kind of pepper them into the conversation to just start to feel out whether this person might be worthy of going on a second date with or a third date with, or whether this is something worth pursuing. And so if, for example, um, you know, your fundamental value is veganism, right? We talked mm -hmm. about that, right? Um you might want to say something like, you know, maybe you're having a meal or maybe um, you're, you know, you're, you're out somewhere and you see people ordering something and you can say, oh, oh do you, do you have any dietary restrictions, you know, or things like that, or, you know, or, um, or what are your views on veganism or what, you know, there, there are ways to, to kind of even make a joke out of something. And, and when it organically fits into the conversation, ask about it. Because on a first date, you might say, you know, hey, I'm vegan. How do you feel about that? Hmm. It's a perfectly valid question if that's your fundamental value. And your date might say, I love steak. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, okay, cool. You know, you're lovely, but this isn't going to work out. And better to know that right off the bat than to get emotionally invested, go on a second and third date because you're so afraid to bring it up really like this person, you think they're very attractive, and you don't want to spoil it, but you're doing yourself and as a person a great disservice by getting more involved and invested um, without finding things out right off the bat. Yeah, I think um, from my friends who are single, when they go on first dates, their criteria is, is there attraction there? And that can really cloud our judgment. I think that's the first thing people are looking for, is there a vibe? Are you going to, do you want to have sex with that person? So how can we, you know, distinguish between you know, this chemistry um, and, you know, the kind of the more grounded approach? Is there a happy medium? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> listen, I think that that's really obviously a very important part of relationship. Um, I happen to be of the belief that physical attraction can grow as you get to know the person, as you get to be attracted to the person and who they are on the inside. That being said, if the sexual attraction isn't there at all, then you know that no matter how mentally and emotionally attracted you are to someone, then that might not be somebody who's, uh, you know, life partner material. They could just be friend material at that point. Um, physical attraction is important, but it shouldn't dictate um, because then you're allowing your hormones 
and your um, primal instincts to choose your life partner as opposed to your intellect. And that's where we often get in trouble because we're not choosing based on this very specific criteria that it's almost like um like a formula. It's almost like a secret, right? It's a secret mm-hmm. sauce. And, you know, we can be attracted to a lot of people. It doesn't mean they're going to make a good life partner for us. Yeah, I think we definitely be blinded by that. It's definitely uh, quite dangerous. <laughs> I think people look for that as well because there is a kind of feeling of scarcity, you know, because you go on so many bad dates where there's no vibe. And then suddenly there is one, and then you you can kind of sometimes if, if the sexual energy, sexual energy is good, you can kind of like disregard some of those punta- fundamental values, and that's when people end up in your office, maybe. <laughs> no, it's it's true, and and you know, and, and the thing about that is that it, it it fades with time, right? That's part mm-hmm. of infatuation and this initial attraction and the butterflies in your stomach and. Um, if there's nothing else there, if there's not the the fundamental values to hold the relationship together over time and the solid foundation and all of these things, then you know that that sexual attraction and that sexual compatibility it it will fade with time. Like it doesn't mean you're less attracted to your partner or you don't want to have sex with them as the relationship goes on. But we all know that that's like very much part of like the initial part mm-hmm. of a relationship and that that kind of peters off over time. Um, for most people. And so, you know, if you're relying on that alone, then it, it's not going to sustain the relationship. But I think that if you're really truly mentally, spiritually, emotionally connected to someone, um, then that is actually going to grow. And and those connections between the two of you um, are going to to build a more solid foundation, um, you know, in, on an intimacy level. Great. So how about, how can we spot a narcissist at the beginning of a relationship? <laughs> That's kind of a big thing now. People talk about that a lot. And, and are there any red, red, flag, red flags at the beginning that you could look out So uh, I talk a lot about narcissists in the book only mm. because I deal a lot with narcissists in my work. Mm. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not a mental health professional, so I'm not qualified to diagnose. Can but de- define what it means? Like, because we hear this word a lot. So what does it actually mean? Yeah, I mean, in in very layman's terms, it's someone mm. who is very full of himself or herself, um, but like can do no wrong. Mm. Um, that's kind of like the very basic definition. Um, this person, you know, it, it, narcissism is a very complex thing in relationships because um, part of the reason that you're attracted to a narcissist is because a narcissist is extremely charming, right? And a narcissist will flatter you, but not because the narcissist really thinks you're so amazing. It's because by being connected to the narcissist, you're flattering the narcissist. You're making the narcissist look better and and aggrandizing him or her. Um, And a divorce with a narcissist just makes for the absolute ugliest and nastiest battle. Um, So... That's why I actually talk about it quite a bit in my book. But spotting a narcissist, um, you know, not everyone who's charming is a narcissist, but all narcissists are charming. So mm-hmm. number one, is this person extremely charming? Um, is this person someone who loves attention from others, who's thriving off of attention? Um, is, he, 
he or she thriving off of attention from you? Um, is this person just putting you up on a pedestal? And is this person really doing it because he or she thinks you're amazing? Or does he or she think that you make them look good? Um, you know, differentiate between those two things. Um, you might not know on a first date. You might not know on a second date. But if you go to an event with this person, um, is this the person who kind of needs to be the center of attention in the room? Is this a person who everyone gravitates to and they're putting on the charm? Um, you know, there there are a lot of like little telltale signs, but we allow ourselves to be bewitched by that charm because mm -hmm. it, it truly is bewitching. Um, but you know, just, just pay attention. I think most people kind of get a sense of these things and they know these things. They just don't want to admit it or acknowledge it because if you're in a relationship with a narcissist or you're dating a narcissist and they're treating you like a god, you know, you don't want to let go of that, right? That's amazing. Now, that's not to say that anyone who treats you like a god and puts you up on a pedestal is a narcissist, but it, it could be. It could be. And so, you know, dating with with a... Um, not just blinders on, but dating very critically. And that's true of whether it's a narcissist or anyone. Dating with a critical eye is just so important. Paying attention, trusting your intuition, seeing the signs and listening to them, actually processing them instead of ignoring them. This is true across the board. Mm. Um, there's a lot of talk of love bombing lately. Do you think that's a, a narcissistic trait where people kind of come on very strong with all the kind of... <laughs> love talk and flattery and um emotional like speed of, of getting you know serious quite quickly that's quite kind of a thing that's been spoke of quite and i think it's this really preys on our need to connect which is quite sad really because i think um there's, there's also a, a series on netflix now called escaping twin flames which is really juicy but it's just kind of preys on that kind of our need to find a twin flame or a soulmate in our loneliness and love bombing can really seduce us. Yeah. I, you know, um, again, I think that that love bombing and, and looking for a soulmate and, and twin flames and all of that, I think that that plays on our, um, on that infatuation phase mm -hmm. of, of a relationship. Um, I, I call that the crash and burn. And oh, okay. I've been in relationships like uh -huh. that where it's just so fast and so intense and the emotions are so strong and it's like crash and you just feel like just the most euphoric sensations and then, you know, it fizzles and or um, the reason that someone is so intense in their emotions is is because there are some other issues at play, you know, maybe they have abandonment issues or, um, you know, intimacy issues or fear of, of commitment or something. I, I, you know, I don't know, there could be so many reasons for it. And um, somebody who's beguiled by that or, or drawn in, by, you know, it's hard not to be, we all love mm. that. It's a great feeling. Um, but again, we have to kind of distinguish between our intellect and our, and our emotions. And when we're in the initial phase of a relationship, our emotions really take the driver's seat and our intellect sort of takes the back seat and it needs to be the other way around. Mm. It's fine for emotions to be present. They should be. I'm not dismissing them in any way. They're a very important part of a relationship, but our intellect needs to be in the driver's seat 
Um, and I, you know, and, and I talk about this as the, one of the other F words is fixing, right? If we need mm-hmm. to fix ourselves before, you know, fixing is a two-parter. It's not fixing your partner, but also fixing yourself before you get into a relationship. And that's not to say that we don't all have our wounds and our scars going into a relationship. But if we're looking, um, you know, if we're selecting a relationship because we're coming from a wounded place or we're looking to heal some sort of trauma or, um, you know, like somebody who has abandonment issues, for instance, right? Somebody who's love bombing them might make them feel so secure, like this person's never going to leave them or abandon them. And so that abandonment issue is selecting the partner instead of the intellect. That love bombing becomes powerful because it's kind of uh, mending that wound very temporarily. It's not going to be one of those things that subsists throughout the course of the relationship. So I think anytime we're looking at this crash and burn scenario, we're, we're kind of not looking at the longevity of a relationship. We're looking at this very temporary situation, which is, it's fleeting. Yeah, it's very easier said than done to get the intellect in the driver's seat, definitely. But going back to a bit further along in a relationship, um, all of all my friends who have kind of gone through, you know, messy divorces or separations, uh, who have discovered infidelities, they've discovered them by going through their partner's phone. Uh, what do you think about, um, should we have access to our partner's phone? Uh, what do you think about that? Because that's like a trust issue as well. Yeah. Well, I think trust is, um, and I talk about this in you know, as a one of pillars. the facets of pillars of foundation, right? The foundation of a relationship, relationships based on trust. Um, that being said, honesty, mm-hmm. communication, those engender trust. Trust is something that's earned. Trust is not something that just exists in a vacuum. And so do I think people should have access to their partner's phones? No. Because mm-hmm. if you trust your partner, you shouldn't be accessing your partner's phones. That's a, that's a private thing. I don't, you know, I I would never ever cheat on my husband, and I don't. I feel very confidently he would never cheat on me. But I don't think that I should have access to his phone or the other way around. Um, we're not hiding our phones from each other. Um, at the same time, and I do talk about this in the book. I think that a lot of people suspect that their partner may be cheating. And so they make the very difficult decision to look through their partner's phone or emails or things like that. And it's not because they're just insecure and they need to be checking their partner's phone all the time. It's probably because they suspect that their partner is cheating and they're looking for validation before they confront them, blow their lives up and, and, and the relationship. And so, um, you know, I, I don't, advocate snooping through your partner's phone, but I completely understand where someone is coming from um, when they feel so compelled to do that. It's almost like at this desperate last move. And, um, you know, if you trust your partner, you probably don't want to look through his or her phone. So if you Mm. do have this compunction to do that, ask yourself why that is. Um, There might be a reason for it. Yeah, and lots of messages that are friendly could be misconstrued and misunderstood as well, because that can cause even more problems. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Another question I want to ask you, you talked about teamwork or being a team in, in, in the book, which is really interesting. And about, I thought it was really interesting about how you talked about assets, you know, sometimes like paying for your own things, because obviously this kind of um, maybe clashes with some feminist ideas and some, some kind of traditional gender role uh, relationships ideas about 
you know, man paying for everything and what have you. Um, and you talk about how, you know, sharing assets is like saying you're part of a team. But surely um, if going through a divorce, isn't, isn't aren't things just easier if there are separate assets and um, it doesn't make things easier? What do you think about that? Well, I think that depends on where you're getting a divorce. Um, California, where I am, happens to be a community property state, which means even if things are separate or kept separately, if an asset was acquired during the marriage, it's considered to be 50% one spouse's and 50% the other's. So in a community property state, that would be true. There are other states where that isn't true. And certainly other countries, the laws are very different. Um, and, and, and I say this in the book, I think that there are obviously relationships um, and I know people who keep assets separately and they're, they're very successful relationships. I don't see relationships that go right. I see relationships that go wrong. And, um, you know, a lot of times people will come to me and they'll say, oh, well, we kept everything separate or um, a very common scenario is like a husband will keep all of the finances in his name. And he has a stay-at-home wife and she's completely financially reliant on him. She's in the dark about all of their assets, their investments, everything. And he knows everything and he's in charge of everything. And that's a power dynamic. That's a control mm -hmm. issue in many ways. Um, but it leaves the wife in a very difficult position um, in the divorce, you know, at least in California, where they're splitting assets, where they're community property. I, I do, I do think that your point is valid though, that, you know, there are these traditional gender roles and there's also, there's also this feminist notion of being independent and having your own assets. Um, and, and those are all valid. I don't think that you should have to account for every penny and share every penny and, and show your spouse every penny you're earning and where you're spending it to be a team. I just think that being a team and, um, you know, like you're kind of both contributing to the common pool in some mm. way. And and when I say that, it doesn't have to be financial. There are a lot of relationships where, um, you know, wife is a stay-at-home mom, husband goes to work, like the more traditional family structure. And the wife is sitting there and she's taking care of the household and taking care of the children. And that's just as important a contribution as going to work and making money and supporting the family financially. So teamwork kind of manifests in many ways, but I, I don't, I, you know, yeah, you can have a separate bank account here or there, but I think that thinking of your earnings and everything you do as part of a common pool so that you can further the common interest and, and the team, that, that kind of that mentality um, could facilitate a, a sense of teamwork in the relationship. Mm -hmm. So what about um prenups do you think this is like going into marriage already planning for the end yeah i don't do prenups um mm -hmm. i don't particularly like them i know that when that word gets brought up somebody usually gets very upset about it mm -hmm. i see the utility in them and i understand that you know when we enter into a partnership and there are a lot of assets involved that you know, we enter into contracts all the time in business deals, things like that. And, and I'm a big proponent of viewing a marriage as a partnership and, you know, and not necessarily viewing it in the romantic sense, which I think prenups, what they do is they immediately take that romantic notion mm -hmm. of the relationship out of the equation. Um, at the same time, 
you know, I just think that that they do place a strain on relationship. One person's resentful or um, it, it could create distrust. I, you know, there, there, are, there are pros and cons to prenups. So, I, you know, yes, I, I think that um, if you're going into the marriage thinking it's forever, it sends a very damaging message to ask for a prenup um, to mm. the relationship. Not from a legal standpoint, as an attorney, you know, I could say, okay, well, I advise that you get a prenup, but um, from a relationship standpoint, I think it could, it, it, it's usually damaging. But a legal question then, does a prenup, is that kind of, because that override the law? Do you I mean, because the law is obviously a fixed thing and a prenup is like a private agreement. So how does that work out? So again, I'm only licensed to practice in the state of California, which means I can only comment on the law in California. And um, prenups can supersede the law in some regards. Like, for example, you could do a spousal support waiver, like alimony waiver. Um, you could contract for, like, instead of, okay, well, anything I earn during the marriage traditionally would be community property under the law, but we're deciding that it's going to be my separate property, even if I earn it during the marriage. So you can kind of supersede the law in that way. There are certain things that are against public policy, like you can't waive uh, child support or things like that. So that, that wouldn't be allowed in a prenup. But yes, in some ways, a prenup can supersede the law. And so that's why it's favorable to a lot of people, because it doesn't necessarily mean guarantee like a, an equal asset split or things like that. I think, um, I don't know if it's worldwide, but I think the first uh, working day of January is known as Divorce Day. You know, people have had a, a Christmas where they thought, no more, I'm not doing this again. Is Would that be true for you? Is that your uh, most profitable yes. day? January is an onslaught for me always. And I'm like, people just decide to play nice over the holidays or they're like, oh, let's give the kids one last fun Christmas together. I don't I don't know what it is, but um, yes, it, it, January... And then to an extent, February, but like my phone rings off the hook in January. <laughs> no Valentine's Day then. <laughs> no, they're already moved on by Valentine's oh, yeah. Day. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, so is there any way, do you, have you seen people have a civilized divorce or is there always some yes. kind of pain? Mm -hmm. Yes, I have. And for the most part, people who are coming to a divorce attorney are coming because they need some help because the other party is not necessarily playing nice or, you know, they go into it thinking that things are going to be amicable and then they're not. Um, but then people come to me all the time saying, look, everything's amicable. We have an agreement. We just need to help your help drawing up the agreement. And it happens. And I love those cases. Um, I think those are really wonderful cases. Um, but for the most part, they're coming to me because they've tried the amicable route and it hasn't worked out. And so they're in need now of, of counsel. Have you had a couple of where both come to you, whether you're the, the, the attorney for both of them? Well, so that would be a conflict of interest for me to oh, represent really? two parties, because if I'm, even if the, everything is amicable, I could be giving advice to one partner and that advice could run contrary to the advice I would give to the oh, other okay. partner. So it would be a conflict. I can be a neutral third party mediator where I could not give advice to anyone and say, I'm going to help you try to reach an agreement. Um, but in terms of representing the parties, and I've had people come to me asking because they were in a complete agreement and everything was totally amicable, but I just, I can't do that. Cause like, for example, I can tell, um, 
you know, wife, like, well, I think you should really get some spousal support here. Mm. And then I'll tell her partner, um, you know, you don't want to pay spousal support. Try to get that terminated at all costs, right? And so now, even though they get along, that would be the advice I ethically have to give to each of them, but it would be in conflict. And so, yeah. Understood. So what are you working on at the moment? What am I working on? Yeah. In terms of, of my career or the projects, you like the book, you're promoting your book. I am I am very, very fervently pro- promoting my book because it comes out on November 28th. And so um, I'm I'm working very diligently on that. I'm also um, working on my very full caseload of clients and and remaining dedicated to um making sure I do everything I need to do and and can do for them and uh preparing for the holidays (laughs) okay there's a lot to do yes so uh, what is the book that changed your life a couple of quick questions for you that's a wonderful question so I was an English major and I was a voracious reader and loved literature and um that's a really hard question to answer because I've read so many incredible books and I think that probably when I was younger, when I was a teenager and I read Catcher in the Rye, that changed my life in many ways. I, you know, I think that's something that a lot of teenagers gravitate toward. Um, How did it change your life? How? In what way? Um, I think it just... I don't know how. I, ca- I can't put my finger on it, but it just um, made me fall in love with writing and literature and um you know I already was like I said I was an avid reader but it just made me fall in love with writing and literature and I think that the then when I was in my like senior year of high school or junior year of high school um I discovered beat literature just the genre itself and specifically like Allen Ginsberg and and um his howl and his writing style and I just wanted to have that passion in my writing. And um, there was something in there that just like spoke to my soul um, that that writing can speak to people on this really deep soul level and touch hearts. And so I think that impacted me as a writer. I loved I love this the style of your book. I think I read fifty pages in the first sitting. Oh my goodness, so thank you so much. I read I read all the I read all the time. I read um I'm always reading something. So it was really, that means so much really to me. Like I, I was telling my mom the other day, I was like, you know, people if they, they compliment my outfit or my looks or something like that, mm-hmm. it's, it's flattering. But like being complimented on my writing, it's just like that's the most fulfilling and amazing compliment I can possibly get. So thank you. I really appreciate it. <laughs> and, and the episode that comes out today, because I have um, a, a lunar si- um, schedule, I publish on full moon and new moon. Oh, um, I love that. Yeah, it's quite witchy. So yeah. the episode that comes out today is um, a book called Feeling Seen, which is a bestseller. It's all about reconnecting in a disconnected world. And that's a very big topic about feeling seen that can apply to relationships, you know, and 
suddenly we're in a relationship that's going a bit dull and then someone else sees us and, and then and their, our current partner's not really seeing us anymore. So in that, And then I read your book after this, so it was a really perfect continuation. I actually uh, reviewed your book in, in today's episode, if you want to check that out. So, because I, I have a, um, a format, which is basically, I have a monologue on the topic of the day and then I have the interview with an expert, then a book review, which is completely unrelated because I'm always reading, and then some affirmations, which are, related to the topic so I do some whispering affirmations I guess with your episode it'll be something to do with like um separations or kind of um consciously uncoupling or something like this <laughs> where I hope you find a meaningful relationship yeah absolutely <laughs> and like you can you can survive alone definitely yeah yes um, but you but... need to because you just need to do the work and do it in the right way and then you can mm. find the right relationship definitely and I find it's really interesting about how you know, how you should be honest right from the beginning. Because I think sometimes I've been, you know, not so honest. Sometimes I just kind of felt myself into relationships and then that openness has kind of gradually grown, but sometimes it was lacking at the beginning. Then you pay pay the price. (laughs) We all want to put our best foot forward. We all want to impress because we want people to like us. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. That's normal. Mm -hmm. But you are who you are and the person is going to find out. So why not yeah. show the person right off the bat? And why not also take a step back and realize that you are wonderful just the way you are. You don't you don't need to pretend to be someone else to be liked. And if that person mm. doesn't like you for who you are, they're not the right person for you. That's fine. On to the next. Yeah, you've got to honor your weird, I always say. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Absolutely. Another I, question for yeah. you. I remember <laughs> doing a handstand while I was a little bit, a little tipsy on my first date with my husband, because I had gotten to the point where I just didn't care anymore. And I was like, I don't even want to be in a relationship. Like I'm just going on this date. I don't care. And I was just being myself for the very first time on a date. And I've continued to be myself throughout the whole relationship because I never felt like I had to pretend. And at the same time, he was somebody who I think made me feel like I could be myself. And that's maybe a part of it is that we, you know, we're, we're, we want to be liked and we don't necessarily think we can be liked for who we are. But then when we meet someone who makes us feel like we can be liked for who we are and likes us for who we are, we can be ourselves. So it's like a two-parter. Definitely. Definitely. So do you have any, a phrase or affirmation or quote that you live by? Um, oh, I'm going to totally botch it. I think it's a Gandhi quote, but it's um, learn as though you were going to live forever, but live as though you were going to die tomorrow. Um, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing it because that's not the exact quote, but um, but that's that's the quote I like to live by. And sounds very applicable to all areas <laughs> of life. Definitely. So where can people find you? So they can um, find me on Instagram at um, my handle is sarah.com a dot intelligator dot esq it's a mouthful um they can find my book at live laugh find true love dot com um or my website which is la family law practice dot com perfect and i highly recommend the book i'm going to publish this in january i think for the first episode when everyone's had enough of christmas So thank you so much for taking part in the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Hopefully we'll find love. Yeah, hopefully. Good luck out there. (laughs) Thank you. The book I'm reading now is Lunar Living, Working with the Magic of the Moon Cycles 
by Kirsty Gallagher, and this is a Sunday Times bestseller. I've had this book on my list for quite a while. I'd seen it online and I was intrigued by it because I've been incorporating more and more lunar rituals into my life as time goes by. It all started around four years ago when I lived in a penthouse apartment and I became more aware of the moon, especially the full moon. Those nights were incredible. I I just remember sleeping with my blinds up and letting this full moon I was um, light up my room. It was it was like moon bathing in bed. It felt very magical. Also, when I started to use crystals, I learned that you have to leave your crystals outside on a full moon so that they can charge with energy. So very gradually, I started to incorporate more of these rituals into my life. And then I started, you know, I started using or having cacao and then doing some personal ceremonies and also I was, wasn't just um, focusing on the full moon, but also the new moon. And that's what's really inspired me with the lunar schedule of this podcast. And over time, I've been gradually becoming more and more aware of the lunar uh, cycles to the point where this year, or sorry, last year, I keep forgetting because now it's 2024, I actually formed a group here in Barcelona called Sorcery Sisters Soirees. And we are a group of friends, female friends, And we do some new moon rituals and full moon rituals. On the new moon, for example, we're focused on setting intentions. We do different manifestation activities. And then on the full moon, we do letting go lists. So each person would write down three things they want to let go of, that they want to release, remove from their life. And we go through each one. And they can be very um, emotionally vulnerable um, soirees, Um, for example, Often we're crying, you know, there's some kind of deep stuff. And it's very, a very supportive um, atmosphere as well. And then we go and burn them um, outside, these pieces of paper that we've written down to try and kind of get rid of this um, energy of these things that are holding us back. And also we have cacao, we do meditations. It's become a really nice ritual to have. And there's a phrase in the book, um, Lunar Living, that really um, struck a chord with me. It said something like, we've replaced ritual with routine which is a very powerful phrase because the difference between them as far as I can see is the intention I mean a routine is something you do mindlessly over and over because you've just got used to doing it whereas ritual might be the same kind of um, order of events or things that you do but it's done with a, a different type of intention more presence and I think that's a beautiful thing to do as well to actually have rituals in your life and I like to you know, increase my lunar rituals with as, as time goes by. And this book has really taught me about how to, um, you know, to observe and be aligned with nature. I mean, for example, there are times when we want to retreat from nature and other times we want to shine. And that's the real, um, I think it's really important to actually listen to those biorhythms that we have as well. Sometimes they can feel like they're um, aligned with the moon, but I don't think they are always. I really try to um, observe and, and uh, honour those in myself. I mean, for example, with my work as a content creator, um, there are times when I don't really want to be seen. And those are the days when I'm focusing on writing. I'm not wearing makeup. I'm just sitting around in pyjamas. I might just stay at home all day. Whereas there are other days where I really want to shine and I'll wear makeup and I'll do my hair and I'll go to my um, private members club to do some work and and crave and and indulge in some human contact as well. I think I'm in a a privileged position that I can actually 
plan my days based on my mood um, and still be productive because I think it's good to kind of work with your flow and um, and not go against your own feelings so I'm going to read a little bit from the blurb here connect with the magic of the moon cycles and live a happier life lunar living is the ultimate toolkit for understanding the moon's cycles the effects they have on us and how working with them can help you live more purposefully renowned moon mentor Kirsty Gallagher explains how simple lifestyle changes based on the moon's phases can bring about positive life transformation. Lunar living will help you recognize where you should retreat, when you should retreat and rest, and when it's best to put yourself out in the world, shine and make things happen. Including a guide to the moon in each zodiac sign, moon rituals, affirmations and crystal suggestions, this easy to follow guide will help you feel empowered to do to make big life decisions understand yourself better tune into your natural cycles improve your sleep mindset and relationships and live with intention so this book is very accessible especially for people who are new to this kind of thing um i'm kind of already primed in my spiritual journey but if you're new to it it's very accessible and at first it talks about what the lunar cycle is, what different phases mean, like the dark moon, the full moon, the um, first quarter, third quarter, etc. And what's happening energetically with those phases, as well as there are some rituals, um, suggested rituals and affirmations for different phases of the moon. And what I really love as well is at the end of each chapter, there's kind of um, a summary of what you've just learned. So it can it can be easy to remember because sometimes you know we read all this information we're processing information constantly but to retain it is another thing so it's a really good thing to kind of go read something and then just see a summary of it just to make sure you've got all of those things in your head then there's a the biggest section of the book goes through all the different moons in each zodiac sign so actually i actually skipped over that bit and i'm going to use this book as a reference book throughout the year so i can um, see you know which moon is doing what so I can actually use it for my own guidance and also with my events with the, um, what's it called again? Sorcery Sisters Soirees. So that's a kind of nice thing. So it wasn't a book that I actually read um, in a continuous manner. I read the beginning and then I kind of left out a big chunk of the zodiacs and um, and then I'm now into, and then the end of it as well, which also mentions things like Mercury Retrograde and uh, other things like that. So it's a, it's a very nice book to read, and um, if you're interested in the moon cycles, I would highly recommend it. It's very easy to understand, it's pleasant, and um, yeah, it's a, it's a feel-good book for sure. And I'm definitely going to be um, <clears throat> observing these different rituals for each moon, and, um, and also looking at the crystals and affirmations as well, because I really do um, love doing these, these small um, routines and rituals. Especially now, I'm really looking forward to sharing some um some new moon the first new moon intentions with some friends and so i can set some intentions for the year and also do a little review of last year as well and also with my group of goddesses sorcery sisters we also do monthly reports um at the end of the month which is not exactly honoring lunar cycles but the, the calendar and we focus on things like what was the most goddess thing you did this month what was the biggest challenge what are your intentions for next month etc it's really nice to kind of take stock of where you are in the world um, or in your life at certain points not just focus on new year and have these new new year um 
resolutions which are very hard to live up to. So yeah, Lunar Living can help you have these intentions and put them into a more bite-sized format, much more attainable, so you can work with different intentions for every month. Yes, that's it. Lunar Living, highly recommended. Now it's time to slow things down as we prepare for this episode's guided affirmations meditation. It's probably not a good idea to listen to this while driving or operating machinery. Instead, take a break from whatever you're doing, get comfortable, take a deep breath and enjoy.
Do you want to make your day more orgasmic? Do you want to experience pleasure like never before? If so, check out tracysdog.com. There you will find a range of innovative adult products designed for your ultimate satisfaction. From intimate massages to couples accessories, Tracy's Dog has something for everyone. They even have one of the highest rated sex toys on Amazon. One user even said that it was so good that they nearly passed out. I'm pretty sure I levitated. It was a never-ending orgasm, she said. Having tried many Tracy's Dog products, I can vouch for their orgasmic quality. If you're curious, visit tracysdog.com to elevate your intimate moments. To find out more about me and my orgasmic lifestyle, visit venusohara.org or follow me on Instagram at instagram.com slash venusohara. Make sure to search for the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast by Venus O'Hara in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks for listening, have an orgasmic week, and make sure every day is a climax. Climax.